HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum. I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Today is episode 106 of Feast Your Ears and the start of, uh, although it doesn't go like yearly, but what is my ninth season uh, here on Heritage Radio Network. So thank you for joining me. Uh, We've moved to a new time. Uh, If you happen to be listening at two o'clock on Monday because you usually used to hear a different show at this time, now you get to hear me. Uh, I used to be on Wednesdays at one, but you can find us anytime online, heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, Stitcher, etc. Uh, so today's theme, uh, I'm trying to make my, my shows a little more thematic, uh, is input versus output as it relates to CSAs. I've been a member of various CSAs since the mid-90s. When I was in college, we had a farm on campus run by the crunchiest of the crunchy hippies. I regret not spending more time there, but the one time in a week every fall semester that I got to go there to get fresh turnips, baseball-sized stock of Brussels sprouts, uh, those are some of my greatest memories. We weren't very good cooks in college, my roommates and I, but we took on the challenge and probably ate a lot less takeout than some of our contemporaries. When I moved to Brooklyn in 1999, there were not that many CSAs in the city. Uh, I couldn't find any in North Brooklyn, which only a few short years later would come to seem like the epicenter of all food happenings in New York. My friend Marissa Kaplan and I decided to split a CSA share. It was so ingrained in us from college that fresh fruit and veg sourced direct was better, more interesting, and healthier that I traveled all the way to a community garden on Union Avenue and uh, sorry Union Street and Fourth Avenue in Park Slope once a week after work, uh, and we'd go back to Marissa's place and we'd divvy up the share and make dinner together. We were both single at the time and lived with other roommates, yet we were buying vegetables like we had a family. 
I think I have to credit my parents with instilling in me a love for the farm stand and buying fresh fruit and vegetables as direct as possible. On summer and fall road trips throughout New England, Maine, New Jersey, when if there was a farm stand, we would stop. My father has been searching for the perfect ear of corn and the perfect bunch of chard since the 70s. My guest today is Benjamin Shute, who, with his wife, Lindsay, runs Hardy Roots Farm in Claremont, New York, on 70 acres of land. I first became a member of their CSA around 2006, I think, might even have been 2005. What I love about the CSA model is that you really get to have a personal connection to the people that make it happen. It's the reason why eating at a sushi bar is so different a culinary experience than eating takeout in your car. It's a great way to stay connected to the economy of food and to force me to budget to a certain extent. It can be daunting to lay out all the money up front. It's not a small amount of money, but if you really amortize it out and you think about it across the entire growing season, uh, you really are saving a lot. And I love that once in a while there's a surprise ingredient that I haven't heard of. I've always been a little envious of people that have their Taco Tuesday every week, but I'm not that person, and I love having different stuff in my fridge all the time. I'm sure that CSA means something different to every member, but for me, it's really the it's the community part that I really like. So, Ben, thank you so much for taking time out of your, your busy spring day to join me on the radio. Yeah, hey, Harry, thank you so much for inviting me on. I appreciate it. Um, so, uh, you know, I would love to, to jump right in um, and understand a little bit more about Hardy Roots. I mean, it's changed a lot. When you and Miriam first started it, uh, you guys had one acre, right? Yeah, so the first year of the farm uh, was 2004, and th- and that year was very contained to just less than an acre up here in uh, the Hudson River Valley. We're about 100 miles north of New York City, um, and uh, and it started out real small and and has grown in the 15 years since um, quite a bit, all thanks to all thanks to CSA. Cool. Yeah, and so now you operate 70 acres that you in fact own, right, you and Lindsay? Yep, yeah. So we, um, for the first eight seasons, we were exclusively on rented land, but not always on the same piece of rented land, because generally rental agreements, um, in my own experience, and unfortunately, seeing a lot of my you know, peers who are, who are farmers who may not have land to inherit, um, rental agreements are sometimes unpredictable. And uh, so we bounced around a couple different properties. And then finally, after Lots of work and dead ends and things like that. In 2012, we did end up uh, purchasing our land, which is where we are now, which is Claremont, New York. Um, so the southernmost town in Columbia County on the east side of the Hudson River. Awesome. I mean, I, you know, so just even just listening to that, I mean, people who live in the city, you know, I mean, it sucks to like move once a year if your lease yeah. is up. Um, I can't imagine the difficulty and how daunting it must feel when you suddenly have to pick up and start over again to farm a new piece of land. Yeah, you know, when, when we got started, it was, uh, <clears throat> we, we were on this kind of handshake lease with a, a couple, there, there were, the owners of the farm were in their 80s, uh, a third-generation dairy farming couple, and um, he was a World War II bombing, bomber veteran, mm. and uh, he was kind of a rough guy, and he, he didn't want to, he was a wonderful guy, but, but you know, he didn't want to sign a legal lease or anything like that. He just wanted a handshake, and, and that was fine with me, because, you know, I, I didn't know, you know, how well this farming thing was going <laughs> to gonna turn out starting a new operation from scratch, right. but... Once you spend some time getting your operation going and, you know, getting infrastructure in place, um, it's, it's a lot to move. But really, you know, I think every time we moved, which was two big times, 
moving the stuff and, you know, taking down a greenhouse and rebuilding it and things like that, that was a pain. But what was, uh, what was the hardest part was, you know, with organic farming, your whole, uh, you know, a- approach is that you're trying to improve the soil um, in the very long term so that every season it's giving you back, you know, something that you put into it. You're improving mm-hmm. its fertility and it's, um, you know, trying to reduce your weed pressure and your insect pressure and things. And, uh, and so to have to leave all that work behind is probably the most frustrating part. Are any of the pieces of land that you rented previously now being farmed by others? Uh, yeah, they both are being farmed. Um, one uh, one is now owned by a non-farmer, but being kind of um, farmed by someone else who who also doesn't have a very um, you know secure relationship. Mm. Uh, like land land tenure, and then uh, the other one, the the farmer who we had rented that from, the second piece we were on, um, actually we we kind of had the opportunity to rent it when his farm had shrunk down in size a little bit, and he didn't need all of his land. And then um, just as we were kind of getting into farming and building our farm, as a lot of interest in local food and farms was was on the up, um, that also was true for the farm owner. And so as as uh, we were building our business. He was making his farm even bigger and, and finding new markets. Mm. So he kind of said, well, maybe it's time for you guys to find something else. <laughs> Got it. Got it. Well, I mean, I guess there, there's positive, there, there are positives in there, right, that the land is still being used for, for what you were using it for and what you were trying to do to, to help the land rather than turned into, say, a parking lot. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and yeah, we were lucky to be on some really excellent farmland, and um, not all of it is uh well the first piece we were on is protected from development um the second piece isn't um and it's some really excellent farmland so it's great that it's still being farmed right now but there's always you know with the question of what's going to happen down the road right well so now you now you have that you know you have that land tenure you guys own your own your own farm um i wanted to to you know talk a little bit about the the csa model i mean for those that don't know it um you know the, uh, the idea of community-supported agriculture is that, you know, end users like myself who become members of CSAs like the like like what Hardy Roots runs, um, you know, we pay essentially upfront for a season's worth of vegetables. And in, 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 and now, I mean, in, in more modern times, I feel like when it first started, it was really vegetable-focused, but now CSAs are offering meat shares. You at Hardy Roots offer an egg share. Um, there's a fruit share, so you can sort of add in all these things. But I feel like I first encountered it just being very vegetable or vegetable and fruit-specific. And, um, you know, so I want to talk about that model and what that sort of means to you. Do you got, were you a member of a CSA before you started or have you always been on the provider end? Uh, my first experience was by working at a CSA farm. Um, so, uh, I, I worked on, um, the, uh, Hokum farm, uh, in Granby, Connecticut. They, uh, they're actually a CSA that's affiliated with a food justice organization and, um, and so my first experience with with the CSA was was on the on the farm worker side and um, farming is my my main career it's been my really my first career and, and um, but I'm a first generation farmer and um, so after working on some farms a little bit here and there um, and wanting to farm for myself I had to to find a few other jobs here and there for a couple of years in between and in, in that time I was a CSA member so mm-hmm. I have gotten to see it from uh, from both sides Cool. And I mean, how much of Hardy Roots business is CSA? Yeah, it's really our, our main, main focus. So, um, 
you know, 90% of what we're growing is going to our, um, directly to our kind of either standard CSA or um, additionally, I, I also grouped together another program that we participate in, which is uh, called Local Produce Link. It's a, a project um, we're involved with through United Way of uh, New York City and um, the New York State Department of Health and the nonprofit Just Food. And um, so we grow essentially what's kind of like a big industrial-sized CSA share for a group of um, food pantries in Flatbush in Brooklyn and um, this year also in East Harlem. Hmm. Um, And it's uh, different than than our standard customer CSA, but it's it's, uh, very much in the same uh, spirit. So so we do, um, you know, almost all of our, our business is CSA, and that is great for us because it means we don't have to try and, um, uh, you know, juggle like, oh, we're doing farmer's market and we're doing CSA yep. and we're doing restaurants and who do we give the best stuff to and things right. like that. Sure. We give the best stuff to CSA and <laughs> the medium stuff to CSA. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we the bad stuff we feed to the chickens. But, um, you know, we... We plan our whole season, our crop plan, everything around our CSA members and preferences, and and we're able to really focus in on that and, and do a great job with that. And and we really like like keeping it that way, keeping yeah. CSA as the heart of it. I mean, you know, obviously farming is a you know it is about business model, right? And everybody has a different one for different farms. In the past, I remember being members, I being a member of a CSA where the same farm also had stalls at the farmers market. And I almost, you know, and, and for me, one of the, the original sort of very early kind of uh, pieces of the CSA thing was that you were joining this community and you were, you were in a community relationship with the farmer as an end user of the CSA. And what that meant is that, you know, if, it, if, if there was a bunch of rain early in the season and one of the vegetables got flooded out, then it got flooded out and you kind of had to like take the good with the bad. And I've never had, you know, that was always sort of the the idea, right, is that we're kind of in this together and, you know, sometimes it'll be a good year, sometimes it'll be a bad year. I mean, I've never had a bad experience. I've always had really great vegetables from your CSA, from other CSAs, but there definitely was a little bit of a feeling where sometimes I would like go to pick up my share and I'd look at the table at the farmer's market and think, hmm, Mm -hmm. so, you know, I gave you this money up front to help you grow all this stuff. And then, you know, you start judging, like, well, is my kale as nice as the kale over there? And, like, that's kind of a weird position to be in. And I get that that's, like, partially how we operate in the modern digital age of, like, always comparing things. But um, definitely I think that that's, you know, it's very cool that basically you are all in. But then it does mean that you're not worried about picking stuff that then you might not sell. Oh, yeah. Well, well, you know, to your you know example of, of um, you know, the farmer's market stand next to the CSA stand and, and having different stuff, you know, it's... I, I don't. I don't think every farm that does CSA needs to be 100% pure about it and things sure. like that. But, but if you're going to do it, you need to make it a real, um, you know, priority. It, you definitely don't want to make it an afterthought. And, and there's farms that do a great job of of balancing that. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's to the benefit of the CSA members. You could, you know, if you have a real bumper crop of. Um, you know, zucchini, then, then that week you can try and sell most of it at the market stand and, yep. and not overload your CSA members <laughs> with it. But, but that's not always what farmers choose to do, so right. you got to be careful. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, we, um, we really love um, doing the CSA for the relationships that we have with the members, but also, as you said, uh, logistically it's also really a great um, model for the farm because if I was doing, let's say, so we, we deliver, 
in addition to doing the CSA on the farm, um, we do, of course, as you said, deliveries to the city. And so that's in Brooklyn. We do East Williamsburg, uh, Greenwood Heights, Bay Ridge, um, and that's on Saturdays that we deliver to those sites. And then on Wednesdays, we're um, up in Riverdale and Washington Heights and the Upper West Side and also East Williamsburg. And um, and if we were doing farmer's markets on those days, um, you know, you you pack the truck at 4 in the morning and fill it up and head down, and you're in the city all day long doing the stand, and then uh, maybe you sell everything, but probably you come back with at least some of the stuff you brought down, and, right. and you get back home at 9 p.m. or something like that. So, um, you know, you have to charge the customers according, you know, you set right. your prices based on yeah. including that food that you didn't sell. You didn't, yep. It was wasted. And um, and with CSA, we know exactly how much food to bring because we pre-sold our shares. Yep. and. We pack that truck full, we head down. We still pack the truck at 4 in the morning, but um, we head down and drop off at each of our locations, and our CSA member volunteers take it from there. So we just drop off three different spots and head back up to the city with a totally empty truck. Everything's been, you know, sold to the CSA members, and um, and we're back home, you know, a little after lunch. So for my quality of life and also for the um, kind of efficiency and, and lack of food waste and things like that. It's really a great model, and uh, and it's reflected in kind of the value of the share. Like your, the price you're paying overall for the vegetables is going to be better than what you pay at the farmer's market because we're not accounting for that wasted food. Right, absolutely. So as you're planning out uh, what you're going to grow in a season, um, do you find that there are, are, like, are there trends in vegetables? Like, are there any vegetables you're really excited to be growing this year for the first time or vegetables that have been part of your rotation for a long time that are, you know, like more fun to grow than others? Yeah, you know, of course, um, we, you know, one of the things about CSA, as you mentioned, is that you kind of take what the season brings you. and um, And we, of course, we do try and have some, Choice available within the share, so yep. that um, so that if you know we send down tomatoes, our CSA stand is farm stand style. So you know you pick out the if maybe you want little sauce tomatoes this week, or maybe you want big you know um, uh, brandy wine tomatoes, and you kind of get to choo- put together your share in that respect. Um, but certain things um, you know are just part of the share, take it or leave it, and um, and so over the seasons we've definitely really tried to. Um, tune in on what members really want or, or want to see once during the season versus want to see every week and uh, and make our plan around that. So we've definitely gravitated over the years towards um, upping the amount of real popular items um, being, you know, things like carrots and tomatoes and um, salad greens and, and all that stuff and, um, and trying to keep the more unusual things um, you know, limited to a few weeks of the season, um, but you definitely we uh, do try new things. This year, the the biggest change, uh, biggest new thing we're trying is um, uh, fresh uh, turmeric. So, wow. um, the last two years we've grown some fresh ginger, which has been kind of a trend with some northeast farmers yep. over the past few years. Uh, you know, some people figured out that wow, you can. You can grow ginger in, a, in an unheated greenhouse in, in the Northeast and have these amazing, fresh, pink, tender ginger roots that you, you can't possibly get anywhere else. And, um, and then people figured out, well, you can do it with turmeric, too. And, and so we haven't tried that yet, but we're going to do a little bit this year and uh, see how that goes with its you know, great medicinal qualities and things like that. So we're going to give that a shot. 
and then um, uh, not growing a whole lot of different types of vegetables, um, but a lot of different varieties. Mm. Um, actually, we tried uh, last year, uh, Colleen, who runs our uh, seedling greenhouse, um, she um, planted a whole... I'm usually pretty conservative about, like, oh, I don't want to try, you know, too many brand-new crops. I've seen, you know, lots of varieties that looked great in the catalog and then grew them out, and they just weren't, you know, weren't all they were cracked up to be. Right. Um, but Colleen was really excited about trying new tomatoes, and she planted um, uh, two beds of just, she planted, like, over 100 varieties of just a few plants, each of tomatoes, to see how they would perform on our uh, farm and took selected the best ones um and now we're planting a whole bunch of new ones uh this season based on what she she trialed for us last year so i'm excited to to try new stuff neat and and are those seeds that you've saved like do you do any seed saving yourself yeah generally we only save seeds when we need to like if mm-hmm. we can't get them from a seed company because they're being phased out or if, Got it. Uh, you know something real rare um then we'll save seeds otherwise uh, generally, I focus my efforts elsewhere <laughs> right. rather than trying <laughs> sure. to save all our own seeds. I uh, yeah. I trust the seed seed companies. Um, you know, we have a lot of relationships with some really great you know small seed companies that do a great job. Um, some of which, like the Hudson Valley Seed Company, are you know breeding specific open pollinated varieties that do really really well in this specific climate. So mm. um, I'm really excited to let them do what they do best, and right. and I'll uh, take the seeds them and take it from there cool uh we're gonna take a short break and hear from one of our sponsors here at heritage radio and uh when we come back i want to talk about how farming has changed in the years that you've been involved with it what it takes to swim a coastline longer than the entire eastern seaboard and leap tall waterfalls in a single bound. What does it take to survive 200 feet deep in icy saltwater? What would you be made of? Wild Alaska seafood is made of tight muscle mass, long chain omega-3s, and incredible micronutrients. It matters where your food comes from. Experience the flavor of the fittest in every bite and enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. Ask for Alaska on the menu, grocery store, or smart device. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum. Today is episode 106 of Feast Your Ears, if you're just joining us. And I have Ben Shoot on the line from Hardy Roots Farm in New York. Uh, ben raises, uh, well, has 70 acres, but farms, I think, in about 25 acres. Is that right, Ben? Yeah, yep, a little over that this year. Um, grows vegetables, and then also you have 1,500 chickens. Is that correct? Yeah, we, uh, it's a, as of, uh, let's see, I think 600 more arrived um, 
on Friday, and then uh, which which are the larger flock, and then actually a new surprise this year is is my daughter's nursery school class hatched out twenty uh, twenty eight eggs of our own nice our own eggs in her <laughs> awesome. uh, nursery school, and so we have some. A very small number of new baby chicks uh, to add to the total, too. Very cool. Yeah, if anybody wants to see a very cute picture of some very recently hatched chicks, you can look at at Hardy Roots on Instagram to see yeah. those to see those chicks in uh, in Ben's daughter's class. Um, so, I wanted to talk uh, a little bit about farming and how it's changed. I mean, you know, I mentioned in my kind of intro that in, you know, in 99, almost 20 years ago, when I moved to Brooklyn and was looking for a CSA, they were around, but they were, there were not really that many. Um, and I feel like the CSA model has really taken off and become uh, much more prevalent, at least in, in New York. And I'm, I'm guessing other urban areas where there is, you know, agriculture nearby. Um, so, you know, do you have some thoughts about that? Yeah, for sure. Um, we started, Hardy Roots Farm in 2004 and started real small. And um, at the time, we were the only CSA farm in um, kind of in the northern part of our county, and uh, and I think one of three CSAs in our in our whole county. Um, and I remember um, feeling like most people at that time didn't really know what CSA was. You had to explain to a lot of people. Um, and in the time since then, in the 15 years since then, uh, we went through a real dramatic change where um, it, it coincided very perfectly with the growth of our farm, um, kind of the interest in local food and the interest in CSA growing and the familiarity growing. Um, and so for a number of years, we were growing the farm very quickly, um, doubling um, doubling our production every year and then doubling that and doubling that for six or seven years. Um, so going from harvesting about 30 shares a week to harvesting now we're closer to like 700 shares a week. Um, wow, that's a lot. And um, and so that uh, but that that growth also um, so that was like maybe 2004 to 2010. There was this huge burst of of new interest and and um, and along with that also came a lot of some new farms. So, um, like I remember moving to, I moved to this part of the Hudson Valley specifically, um, to kind of pursue this land lease that I found here. And, um, after having worked on other people's farms in different parts of the country. And I remember feeling kind of like lonely, like I, like I was the only young farmer around in, in the area. And, um, and I didn't have a lot of like camaraderie and peers in, in doing what I was doing. And now it's just you know you can't walk down the street without running into a young farmer, and there are you know tons of small CSA farms in our area, and um, and tons of organizing and work that's been done around that, and and uh, it's really exciting to see. Um, so it's made it um, it's kind of I think continued the local foods movement growing a lot, um, but with it has come other opportunities for you know sourcing local food or just. Um, sourcing good fresh food, um, whether it be more farmers markets or delivery services that may or may not be, you know, local or small farm focused, um, and and just all kinds of other options. So even though um, you know we've we've grown a lot since the beginning, definitely our CSA membership has kind of uh, leveled out um, over the past few years. Um, I think not because there's a lot of people leaving CSA, but because there's a lot more um, 
CSA farms cropping up. Um, and some people, I think, are doing CSA and then, um, you know, deciding, well, the, I'm going to get my food at the farmer's market instead sure. or something like that. And right. So uh, there's definitely been changes, and it continues to change. You know, overall, though, I think that that's it's it's nice to hear a positive, right? I mean, I you know, I recently was thinking about how all the news that I consume is usually negative, mm-hmm. um, and I noticed that the New York Times has started doing a weekly or maybe it's even a daily email of good news, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was kind of interesting. And I you know, I mean, obviously here at Heritage Radio we talk about you know food and food issues all the time, and so it is nice to sort of step back and think, oh well, you know, here's something we can look at, and in the last twenty years, the you know how much availability of CSAs has grown. Um, and as you point out, now there's young farmers. So I think that a lot of those are, those things are positive. Um, you know, I, th- I would encourage people to take a look at youngfarmers.org. Um, that is the National Young Farmers Coalition. And that organization is run by your wife, Lindsay. Is that correct? Yeah. So uh, Lindsay and I um, and some others uh, co-founded that organization in um, in 2010. Uh, so at the time, uh, I had been farming on my own for about six years. And uh, Lindsay, my, my wife, had um, been doing other kinds of work. Um, she She's not had farming as her main profession, um, but she was doing other uh, kind of policy organizing and, and had a master's degree in environmental policy. And she was kind of seeing what was going on with me and my farm and um, and my, you know, uh, the work I was doing to try and get established as a farmer starting from scratch and and seeing within, you know, my peer group and, and others who were trying to get farms going as new farmers and what was going on. And I think, you know, at the time I was dealing with, like, trying to find um, land and being bounced around between different rental agreements. And um, a friend of ours, uh, Severin Fleming, who uh, founded the Greenhorns, which mm-hmm. is another young farmer organization, was um, I think she had just been kicked off of a piece of land, and um, so the three of us saw an opportunity to um, take what was a lot of real momentum within this young and new farmer community and organize around that and have a you know a coordinated voice, and so Lindsay decided to dedicate her time to that and and has taken that from a like you know little idea that we had in a meeting and started out with a working out of our living room and as a side gig for Lindsay and now um, has chapters in over um, 30 states and um, and has staff in four different offices around the country and has made major um, progress on influencing federal USDA farm policy, making things easier for young farmers to establish uh, uh, credit and get, get credit through USDA, um, making land more affordable and... Um, just made tremendous headway in organizing young farmers and, and creating a cohesive network that we can, can stand up with our own voice and, and uh, try and make this something that many people can succeed at from all, uh, coming from all backgrounds. It's very, it's, it's very impressive, and I, I, commend, I commend you and her for, for all of the work that you guys are doing, um, not just in you know, supplying the food to myself and the other 600 and something CSA members every week, but really, you know, galvanizing your community of farmers across the country to help do the same thing. Um, you know, and then you also find time to like have two kids and also have your life. So, you know, (laughs) I commend you guys. It's a lot. I know how it is. Yeah, for sure. But, uh, 
you know, had, there's moments when it drives you crazy and there's moments when it's very uh, rewarding and enjoyable. So Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're getting close to out of time here. And I want to keep you too long. I'm sure it's a, it's a nice day up there. I'm sure you, you know, need to get back out into the, into the fields, I would assume. Um, but I, I was curious to know, um, you know, what's your, what is the biggest challenge now that you face? Um, you know, you've, you've sort of, I guess, you have the land, um, you've expanded, and now you have, you know, other challenges, I guess, with raising chickens and pigs alongside raising vegetables and raising your family. But, you know, as a, as a farmer now that you've been farming for 15 years, like, what, what do you see as your biggest challenge currently? Yeah, I mean, every year, you know, something crops up that, seems a little scary and like, like it might be a surprise big challenge like um uh like there's a new uh, pest insect this year that all of a sudden is bothering onions and leeks and and uh garlic it's oh. called uh, the allium leaf miner and it was it was never around in this region before uh last year basically or a couple of years ago in pennsylvania um and so all of a sudden everyone who does the kind of farming that i do is having to adjust our practices a little bit to watch out for this this pest um but usually, you know, every every couple of years there's something like that. But generally, in the time I've been farming, um, you kind of figure out solutions and adapt to that stuff. Um, but I think, you know, what really kind of scares me in the long run is just um, the influence of climate change and how that's going to make um, what we do so much harder. Um, and it's it's a uh, that's that's the kind of thing where for us, you know, uh, um, as weather becomes less predictable, you and you have yeah. maybe more frequent hailstorms. Like a, a hailstorm is the kind of thing that can really do a lot of damage on our on our farm. Um, and in fact, you know, a, a flood would be another one. Actually, um, we really tried to um, kind of mitigate some of that risk when we were shopping for a farm, and um, when we were trying to find our permanent permanent land. Um, we had gone through when we were on rented land, uh, Hurricane Irene, Hurricane Sandy, and we were fortunate that we were on very well-drained soil at that time, and we didn't get um, washed away, unlike some farmers in Vermont and the Catskills and sure. on uh, river riverside farms. Um, so, you know, we're prepared to deal with some things well, but, um, but other things, you know, drought, uh, hailstorms, things like that can be a real issue, and, and even more so for... We don't do a lot of tree fruit or anything, but for the orchards this year, they're finally having a good spring in terms of of normal weather patterns of cold winter and then cool spring and no no warm ups and then freezes at night that would kill yeah. all the blossoms, um, which they had the last two years before now. They had a real hard time with some stuff, so um, that kind of thing is just really a, a big a big threat in the long run, and um, and one of the reasons I think that that we were really motivated to start the National Young Farmers Coalition was that a lot of the big ag organizations that claimed to speak for young farmers were actively um, trying to resist any kind of climate change legislation. Um, and we saw that as, you know, the biggest threat to our success in the future. And, and so to have people um, not worrying about that made no sense to, to yeah. us as a farm. Right. Um, and then to take it to a, a more positive place, what's your what's your favorite thing about being a farmer and about running your farm? Yeah, well, I mean, I I think it's probably not for everyone because my, you know my my favorite thing is probably that it's always always fresh every day. You know, we're yeah. trying to grow so many different kinds of crops and and to um, orchestrate that um, balance between 
the weather and nature and this life in the soil and good bugs and bad bugs and um and so it's never dull at all. It's, there's always something to have to tweak and to have to figure out. And the minute you think you've got something figured out, uh, you know something else is going to change. And and so it's very engaging. Like you're you're always um, uh, always kept occupied. And then if you do, you know, once you do really figure something out well, then you can can keep going. You can figure out well, I, you know, I, I can grow really great tomatoes, but how can I do it even more ecologically? How can I do it with fewer inputs? Um, and so it, it's never dull, and it's it's both like you know keeps your body moving, but keeps your mind moving for sure a lot too. Awesome. Well, thanks, Ben, so much for for taking the time. Um, everybody should check out HardyRoots.com if you are looking for a CSA in New York. I, there are still shares available from from Hardy Roots. Uh, YoungFarmers.org, and we didn't even get to talk about it, but you should also check out FarmHack.net. Um, will you tell me just briefly about FarmHack.net? Yeah, so that's a, a project that started out as a spinoff of the Young Farmers Coalition, um, and it's all about kind of uh, DIY farm tools and technology and having an open platform to share that stuff. Um, you know, if if uh, farm tools are going to get more and more technological, we'd rather have farmers tinkering with it and figuring it out and, and owning the technology than having to be at the in the clutches of a big big tech company. So that's what farmhack.net is all about. Very cool. And you can follow Hardy Roots on Instagram at Hardy Roots, and you can look them up on Facebook as well. Well, thank you very much. And uh, I look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks when the CSA season starts. Yeah, for sure. Thank you, Harry. I appreciate it. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening to Feast Your Ears. I'm going to leave you with a recipe or at least sort of a, a theoretical recipe. One of the things I've been thinking about a lot as I was talking to Ben about CSAs and as I get ready for, uh, you know, this, my, I don't know, 12th, 14th, 15th, 20th CSA season, whatever it is, um, is how to preserve that stuff and how to preserve the vegetables that you get in your weekly share. And one of my favorite ways is just through making a brine pickle. And you can do that very easily with any kind of root vegetable. Um, It works really well with cabbage uh, for making sauerkraut. It works well with carrots. It works well with beans. It works well with beets, um, fennel, uh, even tomatoes, and you can lacto-ferment those. And the basic recipe is to take water and salt You want a 5% solution. So for those of you that are weighing everything, that's one liter of water to 50 grams of salt. You want to mix those together. And then you want to, you know, you want to rinse off your vegetables. You don't want them to be dirty, but you can leave them whole or you can cut them up depending on how long you want to wait for them to ferment. And the lactobacillus that is normally present bacteria uh, on those vegetables will ferment them and will start to consume the sugars and the starch and convert that into lactic acid. And it will bubble away and then you will have some pickles. So, uh, you know, I would suggest that you look up brine pickles, but that's your basic recipe. And uh, I'm hoping I can motivate you to preserve some of your CSA stuff the way that I will be preserving mine. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears today. Big thank you to David Tatashore for engineering. Uh, welcome to Mondays, everybody. Now I'll be here on Mondays. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please take a moment to like the show if you do, in fact, like it on whatever platform you are consuming it on. And you can reach out to me if you have any questions, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com. And you can follow me on social media at The Foodballer. Talk to you next week.
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.